Well, good morning. This is uh, Memorial Day weekend, of course, tomorrow Memorial Day, and a lot of people don't really understand that it's not Veterans Day. So it's not the day that you thank people for their service. It's the day that we remember those that gave it all, those that made the ultimate sacrifice in the military and to protect our country. And I know there are some of us here who have served, and there are those of us who've lost people or have had others uh, be wounded. And we just want to take that time, even as we pray and open the service, to remember those that gave it all for our way of life and our country. And there are people, even today, continuing to make those sacrifices. And we're not talking in particular about those who are missionaries and martyrs, but even so, those that have given their lives to protect our way of life, That's what we remember on this day. So let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you this Memorial Day weekend as we sort of remember and and just take a moment to just be thankful uh, and to thank you for inspiring those who were willing to give it all and make those sacrifices, those that have been harmed in battle or in those overseas, and and those that have have been wounded and those that have have really suffered the result of their willingness to stand up uh, for our values as a nation. But we also think about those in the faith who have given it all, those that have made those sacrifices, and maybe they don't get a holiday, but Lord, we know we will see them in glory, and the sacrifices that they've made, like your own sacrifices, will be celebrated for all eternity to your glory. Lord, we now open your word with reverence, knowing that we desire to hear from you, and that's exactly what we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning you can turn to Daniel chapter 5, and in Daniel chapter 4 last week, we saw that there was a very wicked king whose name was Nebuchadnezzar, and he was extremely wicked, and yet there came a moment, actually it wasn't a moment, it was four chapters of moments, that God worked in his heart to break him and bring him to his knees before God, and that happened. And I really think, I really believe in my heart that when Daniel compiled his book and he included chapter 4, which is written by Nebuchadnezzar, the purpose of those first four chapters is not just an introduction, but to let us know that God worked in the heart of a king, that he was converted to faith. But now we get to chapter 5. And this chapter is a contrast contrast to chapter 4 in that this is about an ungodly king that was given the same opportunities and yet refused to repent. And as we look at the lives of people that we know and as we consider those that we're sharing our faith with, we know that at the end of the day, it's, it's pretty binary. There is a very simple outcome. People will either give their hearts to Christ or not. We are not responsible for their decision. We are responsible to give them an opportunity to make one. That we are called to do as Christians, as disciples, to give people the opportunity to make a decision for Jesus Christ. But we are not responsible to make that decision for them. And if Daniel couldn't make that decision for Belshazzar in in this morning's chapter, you can't do that for anyone. And yet we pray that Unlike a Pharaoh or a Belshazzar, those that we love and care about will be more like Nebuchadnezzar. And it's important to have a basic overview of Babylonian history. You see, in 605, or from 605 to uh, 562 BC, Nebuchadnezzar ruled for 34 years, excuse me, 43 years. 
for 43 years. He was the central figure in the chapters that we've studied, chapters 1 through 4. And he was known for his military strength, his great architectural accomplishments, and his strong leadership. Now, in 562, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Amal Marduk, ruled for about two years. He's mentioned in Jeremiah and in 2 Kings. He's also known as Evil Merodach. And he was killed by his brother-in-law, Nereglisser. And that king took over for four years. He was the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar. He was also known as Nergal Sharezer, mentioned in Jeremiah. So the Bible lines up with secular history in presenting to us the very names of these kings and their reigns, approving the historical accuracy of the Bible. Well, he was a Babylonian official, but he was also an assassin. So he did what he did best. But then Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Labashi Marduk, ruled for a few months. He was the son of this assassin, and he was also the son of Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. And so now the royal line has sort of made it back into that family. That family's getting that control. But he was killed by his uncle. So they read sort of like a soap opera here, but... uh, The uncle was an uncle by marriage, but his name was Nabonidus, and he became king. Now, this man, Nabonidus, was actually Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law. He ruled for 17 years. That was a long time. But he was a priest. He was a priest of a god, a pagan god, who was the god of the moon. Interestingly enough, the god's name was Sin, which is interesting. No relationship to the English word we have for sin. But he was very antagonistic toward the worshippers of another god, Marduk, who was the main god in Babylon. So he was a little bit of an oddball, but he took power because of uh, the killings and assassinations of rivals. But at this point, his religious beliefs created many enemies for him in Babylon, so he wasn't really all that safe. So he moved to another location, Tima. And he lived in seclusion for 10 years, making his son, Belshazzar, his co-regent. The reason I mention that is we're about to be introduced to Belshazzar, who is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. But now you understand the history that gets us there and why he wasn't the first ruler in the kingdom, but he was the king in Babylon because his father was not in the area. Okay, so that helps you to understand the history. We'll see that in this chapter they refer to Belshazzar as the son of Nebuchadnezzar, but that word in the original, Aramaic, could be descendant. And when they say uh, father, it can be ancestor. So I just want to explain that up front. He is, in fact, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And he reigned or co-reigned for 10 years. He was the son of Nabonidus, who we mentioned already, and Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, Nitocris. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a great king. The kings that followed were not so great. They didn't reign as long. Uh, they seized power through assassinations and coups. So the, the kingdom is becoming weaker by the year. Every year, the kingdom becomes weaker and weaker. We're going to see later on in this chapter that Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, promises Daniel a position of prime minister, and he says the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Why would he say the third highest ruler? Because he himself was the second highest ruler, his father still alive, reigning over the entire empire from a different location. Now, it's interesting, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 6 and 7, prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon would last three generations. That was a prophecy by Jeremiah going back several decades. And as the word of God is historically accurate, it's also prophetically amazing. 
that Jeremiah could predict in three generations his kingdom's over. Sure enough, you get to the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and we're about to see Babylon as an empire will fall. Now, Belshazzar, we're seeing in verse 1 through 4, he gave a great banquet. Look at verses 1 through 4. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father or his ancestor, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. I don't think I need to tell you what kind of party this was, right? We can not go through the distasteful description of what was going on here, right? You know, they they often say what happens in Babylon stays in Babylon, right? Okay, so they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. That was the, the temple of the Jews that had been destroyed. And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines, they drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So this is a pagan time of revelry, orgies. This is a horrible moment. They're actually taking the sacred vessels and using them for profane celebrations. So you have to understand that. This is like the last straw, okay? The last straw for this guy who has been a co-regent for 10 years. So he's desecrating these goblets from the temple in Jerusalem at this idolatrous banquet. Now, this banquet was a, a time of excessive drinking, revelry, debauchery, and orgies. It was not the kind of place that any of us as Christians would even want to go near. But remember that his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had given his life to God in chapter 4, and he had chosen to serve him. The first thing I want to point out is that God has children, but he doesn't have grandchildren. By that, we mean everyone has to make a decision for themselves whether they're going to serve God. And parents, your children do as well. You can't make that decision for them. You know, you can decide now when they're little what they're going to wear to church. You know, you can decide what television shows they're going to watch or not watch. what what things they're going to get involved in, what recreational sports they're going to participate in. But there's going to come a time, an age of decision, when you hope and you pray that all of those young children that we love so much have been given a foundation such that they make the right decision, but they have to make that decision. And you, myself, all of us, have to honor their ability to make that decision. Now, there are steps along the way. Typically, at some point after eight or into their teen years, we hope they'll make a decision to be baptized. And then at a certain point, now we don't do confirmation, but there comes a point when that young person becomes an adult or a young adult, and then they make a decision for themselves that has absolutely nothing to do with you, just the foundation that you've put in their hearts. And they act upon that, and they make a decision. We pray they make that decision. Some don't make it right away. Some decide to go into the world, and some decide to test the, 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 the things in the world, and it's unfortunate. But listen, you've built that foundation. That is your job. And just like we said, you can't make that decision for a wicked king. You can't make that decision for a wicked child. And we pray we have none of them. And we, at Calvary Chapel here, you know, right now, I mean, my goodness, there's so many children, young children, and our heart and our mission and our vision doesn't neglect older people like me and you, some of you, but it puts as a priority the younger generation because if we don't, we are failing in our mission to reach them for Christ. 
but they still have to make that decision for themselves. And I, I'm sure our parents, uh, you know, you feel the same way I do. It, it's, it's scary to think that one day they're going to make the decision for their eternal destiny, and you're going to have nothing to do with it other than laying that foundation. But remember, that was your decision too. So as we look at this man, he was given that opportunity, but he didn't take it. He was an idolater with a blasphemous heart, even though he was the grandson of what was ultimately a godly king. I'm not saying Nebuchadnezzar was perfect, but I am saying this. He had given his life to God and in chapter 4 said so. Well, he had his servants bring in these goblets that were taken from the Jewish temple that had been conquered and destroyed, uh, well, it was raided in 605 BC, but it was ultimately destroyed in 586. The precious metals contained in the temple were taken as spoil to Babylon to pay for the war effort necessary to conquer the city. Nebuchadnezzar had placed these goblets, these sacred goblets, in his treasure house. And so they're having this party, and he decides, we need more, more cups. You ever have a party or a barbecue and you run out of cups? Well, he comes up with a great idea. Oh, you know, we have some really great goblets in the treasure house. Go get them. A thousand nobles, they're going to have a great time. Well, he wanted to impress everyone with these sacred goblets and all those that were drinking with him. It's amazing what happens when you give yourself over to a substance like alcohol or drugs, how your, your ability to reason and your, your ability to think straight and think clearly just sort of goes away. I think one of the reasons, now it's been, I, I've lost count, but I, I, know I, was, I know I was 21, so let's see, <laughs> 36 years, when I made a decision to give up alcohol. But I do know that every time I ever got involved in drinking, it never ended well. Never. And I'm not talking about, you know, sitting down, having a drink with dinner, which I don't do, but, but just the same. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about revelry. I'm talking about partying. And when alcohol is coupled with that type of an atmosphere, all kinds of crazy things happen. And they drank from these gold and silver goblets as they worshipped the false gods of Babylon. So you can imagine. You know, it is possible, and we saw this recently, and I believe it was probably in chapter 3. Um, no, no, actually, you know what it was? It was on our Wednesday evening uh, study. We were talking about how God's wrath was kindled against Jehoshaphat because he didn't make a good decision and got involved with ungodly people. Now, God loved Jehoshaphat, and he was a good king, but he was angry that he made decisions to hang around with the wrong kind of people, for bad company does corrupt good morals. There are no good morals at this feast. None. They were desecrating these goblets that had once been used to worship the Most High God. And by the way, their idols were made from the same metals and materials that were used to make Nebuchadnezzar's image. I don't know what happened to the image after Nebuchadnezzar gave his heart to God. I suspect it was taken down, but we don't know. Maybe it was melted down. But now probably those metals, those very same metals, have been fashioned into little gods and idols and they're worshiping them. How things can change. And then something amazing and fascinating happened. And I, I've shared this already. As a child, we went, I as a child was in Sunday school, and we went through the stories in Daniel, or the accounts in Daniel that you would expect, you know. Uh, we went through Daniel chapter 3. We certainly went through Daniel chapter 5 and chapter 6. And those were accounts or stories, and they were told in a very simple way to young children. But I remember in my children's Bible, and by the way, parents, if your kids don't have a children's Bible, 
let us know. We'll get you one. They should have one. I had a children's Bible that had pictures that are with me to this day. And one of the pictures I remember was the little finger, the hand, writing on the wall during Belshazzar's feast. And it stayed with me. It was just something I really was fascinated by. You know, the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. These were pictures that stayed with me and have stayed with me to this day. So as we look at the account, verses 5 through 9, we read, Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. And his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. That's a polite way of saying something else gave way. And the king called out for the enchanters and the astrologers and the diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads the writing and tells me what it means, will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. So that is, that is where we're at, but let's continue. In verse 8, Then all the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. No one knows what to do. Well, what would you do if a hand suddenly appeared? A hand, not a body, just a hand, and started writing on the plaster of the wall. You'd be a little freaked out. Your legs might give way as well. But here's what we know. Belshazzar, after all of this debauchery, after all this wicked behavior, watched. He watched the hand as it wrote on the plaster wall of the royal palace. Now, the hand of God, we believe this to be the hand of God, but it may have been the hand of an angel, but... The hand of God in physical form may have appeared to those at the banquet. Possibly. We're not told. We do know that no one has ever seen God at any time, according to the scriptures. And this may be, some have suggested, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In this case, it would be just his hand. But in either case, this was God's messenger with God's message. This may be the same hand that wrote the Ten Commandments. In fact... Specifically, the first and second commandments. You'll have no other gods before me, and you'll make no graven images. They were guilty of breaking both of them. So this may have been that moment that Jesus himself interacted with the people of Babylon or not. But there are only two other times in all of Scripture that God ever wrote anything down. The first is the two tablets of the testimony, the law, which we read about in the book of Exodus where God carved out the commandments on the tablets of stone. The second, you may remember, was when Jesus was writing on the temple ground. And while we don't know what he wrote, whatever he wrote, it caused those from the eldest to the youngest to walk away and not condemn a woman caught in the very act of adultery. So what it was, we don't know. We can speculate, but those are the only two times the hand of God ever wrote anything. This may be the third. So Belshazzar, completely undone by the appearance of this human hand, his blood drained from his face. He's totally overcome by fear. And Belshazzar, at this point in his life, really when it's too late, desired wisdom and the ability to understand the meaning of the writing on the plaster wall. You know, there's some people that go through really horrific experiences and and they respond by crying out to God. And that's a good thing. I wish it weren't so. Like Nebuchadnezzar, he had to lose his mind for seven years or seasons. 
Now, maybe you are like me. You had to go through some horrific things in your life before you were really, truly willing to surrender your heart to God. And those horrific things, we don't thank God for them, but we thank God in them. Amen? Because if not for them, would we be here? I can unequivocally tell you that had I not gone through very difficult times in my early 20s, I would not be here. God knew just what to do with the skill of a surgeon, how much to allow, how much suffering to allow in my life to bring me to my knees before him. My prayer for any person here today who has not suffered in such a way to be very grateful that your heart was soft and you were able to give your heart to God without having to go through that. Suffering is still a part of life. But my prayer for any who have not surrendered their heart to God is to go the easy way now and not let things get to the place where God has to bring you through something awful in order to bring you to your knees. You will be broken. The question is, will you go willingly or will you go the hard way? And I pray for every heart that is not surrendered that you would surrender your heart now. And for those that didn't have to be broken in that way, maybe you were raised in a Christian home and when you came of age, you made a decision that your parents were thrilled with. Praise God. It's uncommon these days, but praise God. Please, go the easy way. Go the best way. Well, now he wants to know what the words mean. Now he's interested in the word of God. People come to me sometimes when things are going crazy in our world and they'll say, Pastor, you're a pastor, right? Yeah. Um, is this the end of the world? Well, I like to say something because of the kind of person I am. Yeah, it definitely is. Well, maybe not. It depends. If you were to die tomorrow, it would be the end of the world. And I bring them to a place where I say, you know, the world may go on for another 200 years, but you're not going to. So in a way, it is the end of the world. At some point in your future, it's going to be the end of you in this world. And are you ready for what comes next? And then they don't ever say, Pastor, you're a pastor anymore. <laughs> they know what's coming. No, they, sometimes people respond in a very positive way. But So here's this guy summoning the men who claim to have the ability to interpret supernatural messages. Now, kings, we've mentioned this before. They often summon their counselors when they required wisdom. They're looking for opinions. Hey, listen, if you needed surgery, would you get a second opinion, maybe a third? Well, he wants to know from a few people exactly what they should do about this message. He also promised the position of prime minister to anyone that could provide the interpretation. I'm sure every counselor wanted to be able to interpret this message. He wanted them to tell him the meaning of the message, but they were unable to do so. Let me explain, though. They could obviously read the words that were written in Aramaic. Just like I might be able to read a Greek word or a Hebrew word or even a Spanish word or an English word, but that's not the problem. Reading a word is not interpreting the message. If I were to say to you some word, if I threw some word out there like contentment, that's not a message, that's a word. You don't know, why am I saying that word? Is there something behind that word? If I would say fury or anger, you could interpret that any way you want. I'm just throwing a couple words at you. So yes, they read Aramaic. They knew what it meant, but they didn't know what it meant. They only knew what it meant literally. You know something about the Word of God? Most of the Word of God looks like that to people who are not people of faith. They open up their Bibles, and they read it, and they, they might even understand the language. They might understand kind of what it means, but they don't understand the meaning of God's Word. 
Because these things are not open to the carnal mind. They're only open to the spiritual mind. And so unless you have the Spirit of God in you, you may understand some of what Scripture says. But you're not going to understand how it impacts you. And you won't hear the voice of the Lord in a way that you will if you surrender your heart to God. So none of these individuals could do that. And we'll see that Daniel is called in because he can. So they clearly lack the ability to understand the message, the meaning. And then he became more terrified by what the message might actually mean. If no one could interpret it, what could it mean? He knew it was for him. I think at that moment he was convicted. I think there was some conviction because he knows what he's doing is wrong and he does it. And then this hair, hand appears and on the wall. And, you know, he's got to know that something's up. He wants to know, uh-oh, what, what, what do I got to do here? But even more blood drained from his face. None of his nobles had any idea what the message meant. And then we're reintroduced to Daniel. And let's read the section. Let's read in verses 10 through 16 what happened. Well, the queen, uh, that's King Belshazzar's mother the queen mother, that would be the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, that meant people were screaming and yelling and freaking out. Hearing the voices of the king and his nobles came into the banquet hall, oh, king, live forever. And that's just what you said when you came before the, before the king or the emperor. Uh, she said, don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Oh, could we use someone like that in our world today? Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and the enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and, the, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So the challenge to Daniel, the incentive, power, wealth, prestige, control, a position, a position he's had before, clearly doesn't have now. I think it's interesting that the king had not really listened, obviously not listened to his grandfather, clearly had not really listened to his mother, but now the handwriting on the wall has caused him to be open to listening to advice and counsel from anyone who will give it to him, even Daniel. That sometimes happens, but that doesn't mean your heart is broken before God. That doesn't mean you're surrendered. Just listening doesn't make it so. You have to surrender your heart to God. Well... His mother advised him to summon Daniel to interpret the meaning of the writing. As we've said, his mother, Natakras, was the daughter of Belshazzar's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, she may have been a godly woman. She might not have been. Uh, She was not attending the banquet that evening. That gives you some indication. But she encouraged this man not to be so terrified by what the message might mean. 
And it's true, because if he would respond to the message, then he would, in fact, not need to be terrified. And I'm here to say to you, don't be afraid of the Word of God. If you hear the Word of God, and you're convicted in your heart, and you think, you know, what Pastor said is true, I'm going to hell. Because I don't know Jesus Christ. I, I reject His Word and have my whole life. You don't need to be terrified. You need to surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. Give your heart to him. Believe on the truth that he died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day. And that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Amen? Give your heart to God and you need not be terrified by anything in this world. And the word of God, rather than terrifying you, will bring you comfort and speak to you in powerful ways. But reject the word of God and you really should be afraid. Be very afraid. You really should. So here's what we know. We know that this woman encouraged him, her son, Belshazzar, to not only listen, but to seek wisdom from one who could really provide the truth. She told them all about Daniel, who had served his grandfather. She recognized Daniel's gift, but it seems to be that she attributed it to the empowering of pagan false gods, which would have been a way of thinking in Babylon. But you remember that Daniel had insight, intelligence, wisdom like the gods. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar made him the, the rabbi, the chief of the magicians, the chief of the magi, who hundreds of years later show up at the birth of Christ. The magi. He was called Belteshazzar. He had a keen mind, knowledge, and understanding. This is Daniel. The ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. He was the shell answer man. Remember the shell answer man? Some of you who are a little older remember they'd have these commercials. When you had a question, you'd go to the Shell Answer Man. The idea was to promote this gas station. And the idea was that he had all the answers you needed to every question you had. But you know, Jesus is the true answer man, God man. The word of God will answer every question you have about life. You, you need to ask, but then you need to listen. And then you need to surrender your heart to God. And you'll receive the answer to every question you have about life, the meaning of life, who God is, who you are, and why you need him. Well, this woman was confident that Daniel would be able to provide that interpretation. Now, I want to share with you, Daniel's about 80 to 90 years old now. He'd been living in obscurity for some period of time. He may have retired resigned from his prominent position in government. He had a prominent position. He, he really was the uh, second highest ruler at one point in the kingdom of Babylon. Or he may have fallen out of favor as a man of God after Nebuchadnezzar's death, which was about 23 years earlier. So he's not in the same position that he was when we saw him in chapter 4. Long after many had forgotten about him, his testimony and godly reputation remained. And I want you to think about that. What will people be saying about you 23 years from now? Some of you won't be here. I'm doing the math. I might be here. The Lord tarries. But 23 years from now, what will people be saying about our lives? What will they say about us when they celebrate our life, when we pass on to be with the Lord? Well, Daniel's testimony was secure. And when all fails, an ungodly person may turn to a godly person for help and direction if they understand their testimony. Even those living in outright rebellion against God are aware of God and their consciences. And when things happen in their lives, they'll be open to speak with you 
or to consider your testimony, because a godly testimony can last a long time and affect many people for years to come. So what's your testimony? What's your legacy? What will people be saying about you 23 years from now? Well, he summoned Daniel because of his reputation and his ability to interpret supernatural messages. He knew that Daniel was one of those Jewish exiles. He knew about Daniel because people told him, but he had never met him. These were the exiles that Nebuchadnezzar brought from Judah years, years earlier. And he was also aware of Daniel's gift, his insight, his intelligence, his outstanding wisdom. He knew who Daniel was, but his own counselors had been unable to tell him anything about the meaning of this message. So he's desperate. And when people are desperate, they'll even turn to you, to Christians, to people that they may have mocked or wouldn't consider worthy of their time. That's where God puts people. He puts them in a headlock. And then all of a sudden they cry out uncle. And what they want is the truth, even though the truth may condemn them. We have to look for that in the lives of those we love. There are moments, those precious moments, where all of a sudden we realize they're willing to listen. Let me speak. Let me be ready to give an answer, like Peter says, for the hope and the calling in our lives, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Well, he was hoping that Daniel would be able to provide the interpretation. And in order to be an incentive or to incentivize him or anyone else, he offered the position of prime minister to anyone who could. Well, then we pick it up in verse 17. And we read this in verses 17 through 24. Then Daniel, now I like Daniel, because Daniel doesn't really care about being liked. If he had a Facebook page, he wouldn't care whether you liked or disliked him. He wouldn't care because he was concerned about pleasing God. If you're the kind of person that is concerned about pleasing others, you're a very, in a very dangerous place. You have to ultimately become the person who serves God and doesn't care at all what others think. That is one thing that comes out loud and clear in the book of Daniel. With Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ultimately Nebuchadnezzar. They don't care what the world thinks because they have a relationship with God. And so, picking it up now in verse 17, then Daniel answered the king, <laughs> where's the king you may live forever, right? No, he says, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Now think about that. He knew what it meant and it wasn't a good message. And he wasn't using flattery. He wasn't concerned to ingratiate himself to the king, but he was rather pleased that he had the opportunity to pronounce judgment against this wicked king. He didn't feel that way about Nebuchadnezzar at all. So this is a decidedly different type of person. So, O king, in verse 18, the most high God gave your father, ah, now we're going to get a little history lesson, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar's sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. And because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. And those he wanted to spare, he spared. And those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. And he lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. By the way, that is the theme of the book of Daniel. 
the sovereignty of God. But you, his son, or you, his descendant, in verse 22, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, you see, there's the accountability. He knew everything that Daniel just reminded him of. Though you knew all this, instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from your temple brought to you. How did he know that? I don't think anyone told Daniel. I think God showed him that. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel parson. And this is what the words mean. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, I wouldn't have gotten that message out of those words, and you wouldn't have either, and they didn't. It took supernatural insight to understand that these were just keywords, a code, if you will. They needed to be interpreted with the Spirit of God. And it was interpreted because Daniel had the Spirit of God and was able to read the words and not only what they meant, but the inference, the deeper meaning, what they implied. You see, it was very important to to know that these words have meaning, and we'll look at them in just a minute, but that there's a, a meaning that you can interpret from them that would require the insight that only God can give. Well, as we've seen, Daniel agreed to interpret the meaning of this writing on the plaster wall. I like that he refused any gifts or rewards from this ungodly king. He didn't want anything from this person at all. And I'm going to say something about those who are in ministry or those that want to serve God. Your attitude in your heart must certainly be that of not looking to receive anything. That is fame, celebrity status, power, wealth, notoriety. When you work for God, when you serve God, Your only reward should be God himself. And by the way, I say only reward. Is there a better reward? Amen. Is there a better reward? No. God is your reward. He is your portion. He is your inheritance. You don't want to settle for a book contract, an interview on TV, or some podcast. You don't want to settle for notoriety, fame, or an opportunity on Fox News to comment on a tragedy. I see many pastors doing that, and I pray that they're doing some good. I can't judge their hearts. I won't judge their hearts. But I'll tell you this, that is not the goal. The goal isn't so that everyone knows your name. The goal is that God is your God, and you know him. So that is a very important thing. I think Daniel shows us a complete and total lack of larceny. He doesn't want anything from anyone except God. He wasn't enticed to use his spiritual gifts for personal gain. He was willing and had been willing to receive gifts and rewards from Nebuchadnezzar, but not his wicked grandson. Now, why would he? Because he had a relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. This was a man that God had shown him would come to faith, and he was making an investment. And so the position was was not so much about Daniel receiving the position, but him being able to represent his people before the king and reach the king. 
You see, even the, every motive of Daniel's success was about others and about his God. And we'll see that in the next chapter as well. He was willing to interpret the message for this king. Why? Because it came from God. And even the most wicked person you know, if you have a message from God or God's word for them, don't shut it down. Preach that word. Preach that message. And you might say, well, why would I bother? They never listen. It doesn't matter. Jeremiah had a ministry of preaching to people and no one listened. In fact, so many people ignored him that when Jesus walked the face of the earth, they said, we're we're not really sure who he is. He might be John the Baptist back from the dead. He might be Elijah because of the miracles, or he might be Jeremiah because nobody listens to him. I, I, I put that in there. That's not in the Bible, okay? But clearly no one listened to Jeremiah, and so they thought he might be Jeremiah. What was the thing they had in common? Right? So, you know, listen, it's not such a bad thing to be a Jeremiah. And maybe you feel like that. No one listens to me. That's okay. Very few listen to God. But you still need to preach it. As the Lord said to Ezekiel, if you don't, their blood is on your hands. You need to preach the gospel. Oh, but nobody ever listens. It's a waste of time. No, it's not a waste of time. Oh, they're still going to go to hell if they reject the message. Yes, but they'll be educated and they'll have had the opportunity to make a choice. That's all we can hope for. Well, we can hope they'll respond. But in our own strength, all we can do in God's strength is share the truth. So he recounted how the Most High God had given Nebuchadnezzar his high position. God had given him sovereignty, greatness, glory, and splendor. And we've seen this in previous studies. He was the king of kings to whom God had given dominion, power, might, and glory. He was given authority as ruler over mankind, the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. God gives his kingdom that is the Babylonian kingdom, or any earthly kingdom, to whomever he pleases. To the lowliest of men, we learned. God had given him power over many many nations and peoples and language groups. He was dreaded and feared by those he ruled, and he had the power of life and death over all his people. There was no appellate system. If he decided you were going to be executed, you were executed. I would never want that level of power. But this man had it, but God was also reaching his heart. He had the power to promote. He promoted Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. He also had the power to humble whoever he wanted, whomever he wanted. And then he recounted, Daniel recounted how Nebuchadnezzar's sanity was taken from him by the Most High God. This is a a little history lesson, a little reminder. You know, you're the grandson of a king, and this you know, and still you behave the way you behave. He was humbled because he had become arrogant and hardened with pride and he went to the roof and claimed to have built Babylon by his mighty power and for his glory and his majesty. And he, as we saw last week, he was immediately deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. God didn't destroy him. He humbled him. He was broken. His royal authority of the kingdom of Babylon was taken from him. What does God have to take from you to get you on your knees before him? Please don't find out. Please don't find out. This man, Nebuchadnezzar, was driven away from people. His mind became like the mind of an animal. He lived outside with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. This continued for seven years. Some people say seasons, but it was a long time until he acknowledged the theme of this book, the sovereignty of God. Brothers and sisters, he is the Most High God. Amen? He's in control over the kingdoms of men, and he reserves the right to give them to whomever he wishes. And that was the lesson Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. And it's the lesson that Belshazzar is about to learn the hard way. And I love that Daniel rebuked Belshazzar for his pride. 
for his rebellion, his revelry, his idolatry, his refusal to honor God. He knew what was going on in that room. He wasn't there, but he knew. You see, this man had not humbled himself, even though he was aware of this testimony. He set himself against the Lord of heaven instead of submitting himself to him. And as we've seen, as we know, he desecrated the sacred goblets. That was the last straw. He drank from these goblets and worshipped false gods. And Daniel was completely aware, supernaturally aware, of all that the king and his nobles and his concubines and his wives were doing before they called Daniel. And God knows what you're up to. God knows where your heart's at. God knows who you are and what you do. And you might be thinking, well, God doesn't want anything to do with me. Well, let me ask you something. Did God make a final attempt to reach out to Belshazzar? Yes. He wouldn't have bothered otherwise. This is an opportunity. This is a last chance, if you will. You ever been on the highway and you're running low on gas and you see the price is $842 for your tank of gas, you know? And uh, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not really exaggerating. Depends what you're driving. Uh, but, you know, and you think, oh, you know, I can get a few more miles. And you see the sign says, you know, last rest station for the next 20 miles. And you're doing the math. You're doing calculus and trigonometry, trying to figure out what the wind chill factor. Can I make it to that gas station that's 10 cents cheaper? All right, maybe it's just me. And it's like, this is your last chance. You can just get, even if you just get, one time I was on the highway, I said, I'm not paying that price. I only put $10 in them because I'm being cheap. But at least I didn't run out of gas. You know, some of you, you're on that highway, and this is your last rest stop. This is your last chance, and you're still saying no. Nah, I can get a better price. Nah, I don't like Exxon. I do silly things like that sometimes. And I think to myself, wisdom would tell you, yeah, you might want to stop and gas up. Brothers and sisters, this could be the last time, if you haven't already surrendered your heart to God, this could be the last time you have an opportunity like this when your heart is soft and you're willing to listen. This was his last chance, and you would think you would have thought that he would, but he didn't. Well, Daniel had no problem rebuking him. You see, he didn't honor God who held his life and all his ways in his hand. And that's true for you. That's true for me. His actions were the reason why God sent the human hand that wrote on the plaster wall. He had asked for this. And yet God could have just struck him dead. He had done that with other people. But maybe the heart of God, I don't want to speak for God, but maybe the heart of God was, let's give this guy another shot. You ever feel like you were that person one time? Aren't you glad God gave you the 842nd chance? I don't say the second chance, the third chance. I'm way above that. I'm definitely in at least the triple digits. God is so good to us. Knowing that we'll reject him, he still offers us salvation. Well, Daniel interpreted the meaning of the writing. The inscription, and, and, and bear with me here. I'm going to go through this quickly. It's a lot, but, but I think it's fascinating. The inscription contained three Aramaic monetary terms. That's what they were. They were monetary terms that they could read but not properly interpret. Just three words, mene. It means numbered. So if you're numbering something or counting something, it's, a, it's, a, it's the language of commerce. So you're counting your money. You would mene because... It also means mina, which is a word used to count currency. So specifically, the word was used to count currency. Tekel means weighed. Weighed. 
It also means shekel, which is a word used to weigh merchandise. So if you're going to a market, you could count your money. You could weigh the merchandise. And then finally, parson, which was the word that was written on the wall, it means dividing, dividing. But it also means half, which is a word used for portioning merchandise. So sort of dividing. These are, these are mathematical terms, but they're commercial terms. Oh, I'll take half a pound. Here's my five dollars. You see, those words may have meant nothing to them because it was a deeper meaning, but they clearly would have known that those were words. But if, if I just put numbered, weighed, and dividing on the wall, who could interpret that without God's wisdom? The interpretation was a message of judgment against Belshazzar and the kingdom of Babylon. And Daniel knew that. Numbered, interpreted, meant that God had ended his kingdom after just three generations. Remember I told you, Jeremiah said in 27, verses 6 and 7, that it had been numbered. Three generations. This is the third generation, and it's over. Wade meant that God had evaluated his life and found him lacking in reverence for him. He had been weighed and judged, numbered. The days were numbered. His life had been weighed and then divided. Now, this is interesting because I don't know if you noticed this, but when you get to verse 28, Daniel says Perez, not Parson. Do you see that? Why did he use a different form of the same word? Why didn't he say Parson? Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Well, there's a simple reason for that. It has to do with the tense of the word or the verb. It, it's a tense thing. It, it really means that divided is that God had divided his kingdom and given it to the Medes and the Persians. The kingdom was already divided. When the writing was on the wall, it was in the process of being divided. So therefore, dividing. But now that he's pronouncing judgment, the judgment has been made, and it, the kingdom has already been divided. And we'll see that that was true. So Daniel used the word Perez as well, right? You saw that word? That's a form of that word parson. But it's a word play because it also means or, or directs to the kingdom of Persia, which Perez is a word play on. So it's a deep message. It's got a lot of layers to it, and Daniel was able to interpret. It's kind of like a riddle. You know, it, it is. It really is. And, and, and Daniel just breaks it apart and applies it and interprets it correctly. So divided meant that the kingdom had been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Divided into two and given to others. So when he used the word Perez, which means divided instead of parson, which means dividing, it was because when that message was given, the process of the kingdom being taken was taking place. But now he doesn't even know it. His kingdom is already lost. He's going to find out in just a few hours maybe, that he's already fallen, that the kingdom's already fallen to his enemies. Well, when the human hand first appeared, the kingdom was being divided. You guys know verb tenses, right? Parson is the present tense, referring to the process of dividing. It's also plural, refers to the parts of a divided kingdom. So I love that the language is so accurate. If you're into grammar, you like this stuff. If you don't, you can ignore it. But by the time this message was interpreted, the kingdom was divided. Paris is singular. Perez is singular, and it refers to the state of a divided kingdom. It is one kingdom divided. Past tense. It's already over. You know, so many people going through life right now, they don't realize their life is over. Really. They don't realize. God knows that, like, next week they're done. 
God, God knows that like two years from now, they're no longer going to be here. Don't wait until that has to be said to you to get right with God. As I've said, it's also a reference to Persia, the conquering empire. So Daniel's promoted to the position of prime minister of Babylon. Look at verse 29. Then, at Belshazzar's command, he made good on his promise, even though the message wasn't so great. Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. See, he didn't realize it was over. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. I think this is a good message to remember. If you're resisting God, don't wait till the last minute. You may not have one. There are many people who thought, well, you know, I'm young. Maybe when I'm 30. And there are some older people that say, well, maybe when I retire. Maybe when I get a little older. But you don't know if you're going to have that opportunity. So I pray that each of us have made that decision for him. Amen? Well, the Medes and the Persians, they conquered Babylon. They came together. Belshazzar was slain later that same night. And Darius the Mede became the king of Babylon at the age of 62. Now, Daniel didn't actually have the opportunity to serve as prime minister for more than maybe a few hours, maybe just less than an hour. We don't know. But Darius the Mede, history tells us, co-reigned over the kingdom of Babylon with another man, Cyrus the Persian, who comes up in other writings in the Bible. They were co-reigned because, remember, it was the Medes and the Persians. They came together. There were two kings, and they worked together to conquer Babylon. In fact, uh, you know, I could give you an overview of Persian history. I think I'll spare you that. I've given you enough information. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll lead with that next week to get us into Daniel chapter 6. But a lot had happened to bring the kingdom to this point. But now Babylon had fallen. And the Medo-Persians, they did this by conducting an unsuccessful siege of Babylon for many months. The enemy was outside the gates. The city was surrounded by an impregnable wall. It was, it was so wide that several chariots could race on the wall at the same time, side by side. The wall was 300 feet high, 80 feet wide, 15 miles long. There were huge towers overlooking the wall and a smaller secondary wall as well to slow down the advance of the enemy. And the Euphrates River ran right through the city, passing directly under its walls. Babylon was considered to be, like the Titanic was unsinkable, Babylon was considered to be unconquerable. But the Medo-Persians ultimately used engineering. We have any engineers here today? They used engineering to conquer the overconfident city of Babylon. They dug a new channel around the city to a nearby lake. Then they diverted the river, entered the city under the walls through the dry riverbed. Then, while the Babylonians were in this drunken state, feeling overconfident, they opened the gates unnoticed. All of this is happening between the time that the words are written on the wall and Daniel brings the interpretation. Babylon fell to the conquering Medo-Persians under the leadership of Cyrus and Darius, and the unsuspecting Belshazzar and his bodyguards were easily slain. Cyrus was welcomed into the city by his many sympathizers without a fight. They unlocked the gates, marched in, killed the king, killed his bodyguards, and took over the city without a fight. Now, Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, you remember him? He had fled the city earlier, but he was captured shortly thereafter. And so the Lord had predicted the fall of Babylon. He actually had predicted it through Isaiah hundreds of years earlier, Jeremiah decades earlier. He had predicted with accuracy that that kingdom would fall, and it did. I'm going to predict something with accuracy as I ask the worship team to come up.
It's a prophecy I can give you knowing that I don't have to wonder whether it's true. 100% of all people die. Whether they're slain, whether they die of old age, whether they make it to 107 like my Nana, or they die of very young age, it doesn't matter. Every one of us are going to have to realize that our day is coming. Our days have been numbered, God knows. Our life has been weighed, and there's nothing you can do at all to increase the weight of your own glory such that you can appear before God and be justified in your own works. Unless you give your life to Jesus Christ, you'll be weighed and found wanting. And as far as dividing and divided, you know, your life... (laughs) You're in a place right now where if you're over the age of, let's say, 21, 22, your cells are dividing. And you, you actually physically started dying around that age. What a wonderful message, Pastor Tim. You made me feel so great this Memorial Day weekend. I found out I'm dying. But it's real slow most of the time. Well, sometimes it's not. Sometimes we get a cancer or some type of a disease, and then those cells work against us, and we die quickly. But there will come a day when you've divided There'll come a point where you pass on into the next world. The only question is, will you be a Nebuchadnezzar or a Belshazzar? You know you're wicked, right? You know that. I know I am. Have you repented? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you submitted your heart to him? So that when that day comes, whenever, whenever that day should come, that you know that you will spend an eternity with Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection and his promise to come again. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We love you and we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we ask now that every heart here and everyone that would listen online and those that we share the gospel with this very weekend would hear that message and that they would respond as Nebuchadnezzar did or maybe even not having to be broken, but that they wouldn't become a Belshazzar and having to be slain only to find out that they wasted every opportunity to come to you. Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts this week. Give us wisdom and the ability to interpret your word and to share it with others that they might come to faith. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.